Stanford University. The Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, creating a more equal society for women and men through data-driven research and public education. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I had this interesting experiences last week that sort of set me up for this talk. Um, I was interviewed for a radio program um, called um, Women Mean Business. And I had a whole script that I'd gone over with the interviewer. And every question she kept asking me was, she said, so how come women don't ask? And that's not my talk. Um, and then I had a conference call with um, uh, a woman from one of the major financial services companies because she's running a panel conversation uh, with some of us who do research on gender. And she said, you know, all this other stuff you talk about, women just don't ask. They don't come to my office and ask. They never ask for money. And then in the New York Times, I think it was this weekend, Joanne Lippmann had an um, op-ed piece. You know, she has um, had a uh, career in professional publishing at the Wall Street Journal. She introduced Portfolio magazine. And the same thing. Only men came to my office to ask for more money. Women never did. And you know, women don't ask is really the way we tend to think about this. And I want to sort of shift our discourse if I can. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, um, that set of ideas, but also try to talk a little bit uh, of another way, I think, to think about some of these issues. So the origin of this paper is that the negotiation journal, which is put out by the program on negotiation, it's its 25th year. And they asked people who had done research on a number of different topics in negotiation to write this, these articles on 25 years. Um, I actually got interested in the program on, on gender when I went to the program on negotiation, which was in 1987. I had never studied gender before. My work was on mediation and dispute resolution. But when I got to the program on negotiation, I became the instant expert on gender. I was the only woman on the faculty, and everyone assumed I must know something about it. They asked me to come to their classes and talk about it. And I had never um, done any work on it. But it seemed appropriate in terms of this paper to start, actually, with an article, with, with a book that was written in 1977 by Jeff Rubin, because Jeff Rubin was, in fact, the first editor of the Negotiation Journal. And in 1977, he wrote, there was a whole chapter in the book, which was called The Social Psychology of Bargaining. There was a chapter on gender and other individual variables. And he looked at class and race and intelligence, all, and gender, as a set of individual um, variables. And he argued, he had sort of a way of thinking about it. It wasn't really about gender differences. It had to do, had to do with what he called interpersonal orientation. But he, he claimed that the reason people were interested in, in sex and gender was that it was very easy to measure. So in any laboratory situation, you could always just make it a variable and you could study it. And the reason I mention that is because there's been a real explosion in research on gender and negotiation, and the motivation is different. The motivation is to try to understand something about why is there a wage gap between men and women. Recently, what, it's white women, 77 cents. For every dollar for men, it's still the same. It hasn't changed much. The wage gap, but also trying to understand why we don't have women in senior leadership roles. So this line of research looking at gender in organization is being mobilized to understand something about what happens in organizations 
but it isn't studied in organizations. It's studied someplace else. Um, so what I want to do this morning is, this, this afternoon, I don't know what even time it is. I still haven't really adjusted. It's 12.10. Um, is to talk about um, this research stream. The first one is the dominant one, where people say, what's the problem? Well, the problem is women. And the problem is that women don't ask. And I want to share with you some of the ways we understand, what, what is it they don't ask about? And what are some of the ways we understand why they don't ask? The second set, and I just would say, the research on gender negotiation has exploded in the last 15 years. When I went to the program on negotiation, I was practically the only one doing any work on this. But it's become a really big area of research, as negotiation has come to be uh, an important area of um, research in psychology, social psychology, in business schools, law schools, et cetera. More recently, people have started to look at gender schemas and stereotypes that operate in the interaction. So rather than looking at just the individual, looking at the interaction, and looking at something we call the social cost of asking. By the way, this paper, we, we're going to be able to send the paper out to you. We can't post it on the website because it's published. But the paper that this comes from, we will be sending out. So what do we know about the social cost of asking? And of course, anytime anyone discusses this, they always have a picture of Hillary Clinton. It's always, or sometimes Sarah Palin too. Uh, it's, it's more recent work. And so it's trying to understand something about how we navigate around those challenges. So the third perspective is looking at the cultural and institutional mechanisms that create the context within which negotiation occurs. What do we know about those? How do we navigate around those challenges? And then what are some of the ways that negotiation, both at the individual and systemic level, can operate to change some of those dynamics. So let me start with the research. So we know women don't ask. There's a book, Women Don't Ask. It's been a very important bestseller. Women are less likely to initiate negotiations. There's lots of studies where there's a task, and you're given a price for doing the task, usually college students or MBA students. And the fact is that men negotiate uh, more of a fee for doing it than women do. 27, in the most recent study that I know, 27% of the men negotiated for more compensation for the task and only 3% of the women. I actually don't think 27% is all that high, um, but it's higher um, than women. Um, men are, less po are more positively disposed to negotiations. Some people have said that for women to negotiate, they equate it to going to the dentist. Um, Women are less confident. Um, they feel less effective even when they've done well. They set lower goals in negotiations, and those lower goals become self-fulfilling prophecies. Perhaps they don't feel the same sense of entitlement. Women accept less in salary, either because they don't initiate them, it themselves or because they don't get the same payoff for negotiating that their male colleagues do. They're also less satisfied. They don't feel they've done as well, even when the outcomes are similar. And my favorite is that women tend to suffer aspirational collapse. This is aspirational collapse. <laughs> so you go in and you ask for something, and somebody says no, and women say, well, OK. So how do people explain these differences? You know, I was talking to this woman from this professional services firm last week, and I said, and she said, you know, women don't ask. And I said, well, how do you explain that? 
And she said, well, they're very nurturant. And they are, um, they care about relationships. Well, you know, everybody? I said, all of them? That's the only reason that you have. Well, so let me just, let me go and step back for just a minute. About 10 years ago, there were some meta-analyses that were done by Alice Stumacher and her colleagues. There were, there were two where they reviewed all the literature that had been um, done on gender and negotiations, and they found only two differences that held up across all these studies. One is, and these differences were significant but small, overall women were slightly more cooperative and men got better outcomes when money was the issue. Um, it was significant but small. And we haven't had any more meta-analyses that I know of, and I think it's really important because I think there's lots of contradictory evidence that comes out about women and asking. For example, a colleague of mine at her law school has been tracking law students for years. She finds no gender differences in terms of asking um, in the classroom. I did an informal survey at one of the conferences that we run at Simmons. I had 500 people. It was self-reports. But over 50% had negotiated for things that, were, that were, they thought were critical to their success. So how do people explain women don't ask? Well, they're these generalized explanations. They learn not to self-promote. They're nurturant. They think relationships are really important. And they want to be liked. But nobody ever tests for that. So that it, the, the ex explanation is marshaled as a reason for why this happens. But more recently, we've had some studies that have tried to look at the context, the contextual situations that might cause women to, be, to, ask, to ask or not to ask relative um, to men. The first is there has been some attempt to separate sex from relational orientation. There's a measure called relational self-construal. Um, it's highly correlated with gender. People who are high on relational self-construal tend to be more accommodative in negotiations and, le and re realize less efficient outcomes than those who are not. Again, it's highly correlated with gender. I should mention that when people talk about these gender differences, there's no other aspects of identity that are ever part of these studies. Class doesn't enter in. Race doesn't enter in age doesn't enter in. They've never been studied in terms of other aspects of identity that might matter in terms of looking at these issues of asking. Issues tend to matter. Some people who've done surveys have found that, you know, when the issues aren't money but their time and flexibility, women negotiate. There's not a difference between their male colleagues. We certainly know that there's a significant difference between whether you act on your own behalf, whether you're a principal, or whether you're acting, whether an agent acting, whether, acting on your own behalf, whether you're a principal, or whether you're acting as an agent for another group. And what people find is women are less likely to ask when they're asking for themselves. They ask as agents. And in fact, some of the studies have shown that women do better than their male colleagues when they're acting as agents. Right? So it has to do something about yourself. The type of negotiation matters, right? So we tend in the negotiation world to think about distributive negotiations, which are negotiations about a single price, like a single issue like price, and mutual gains negotiation or integrative negotiation where there are multiple issues. So it turns out that women are much less likely to ask when the um, negotiations are distributive, that is, they're over a single issue. In a recent study about four years ago where they did a survey of studies, two-thirds of the experiments that are looking at gender are of distributive negotiation. So we're finding 
that women don't ask primarily in these distributive negotiations, and that's primarily what gets studied. There's been some interesting work on the activation of stereotypes, stereotype threat. Right. So it's very easy to activate stereotypes that seem to make a difference. I have some issues with this line of research. I'll just tell you what it is. What happens is if you have no activation of stereotypes, men tend to do better. If you activate a male stereotype in a mild way, men do better. If you activate a female stereotype, like good people do well if they're empathetic and listen well, women tend to do better. If you use a strong activation, it turns out that women react and they actually do better. If you say, it is totally predictive of your, your gender is totally predictive of your ability, women tend to get, I guess, angry and do better. But you know, it's a distributive negotiation. And I have to tell you, I teach negotiation. The first thing you do in a course is a distributive negotiation. So we have people in this uncertain situation. It's one of their first activities. And we're looking at what gets mobilized as a stereotype. It seems to me, since we tell people that anchoring is really important, as people look for cues in uncertain situations, this is a cue in an uncertain situation. Um, we also know that access to information makes a big deal, makes it, has a big effect. If you have information, it turns out that we see less of this gender effect. So studies of MBAs, they studied Harvard MBAs, those who went into investment banking previously and consulting, um, where there's a lot of information about what salaries are, there's no gender differences. But if they go into something like biotech or something else where there's not a lot of information, you tend to see um, you tend to see um, more of these differences. So, I mean, I think this is where we sort of are in trying to understand. I think people are still doing this kind of work, and they're really trying to understand how we, what are the conditions under which gender comes to be an issue. I, oh, I, before I show you that, it was, it was my cartoons. I guess one of the things that I want to argue about this line of research is that when people are in laboratory studies and they're doing distributive negotiation, I'm not the first person to argue that the skills in distributive negotiation are masculine. It's a masculine way of doing negotiation. There's also a very narrow definition of what an outcome is. It's efficiency measures. And so when you have this kind of structure and then you have these kinds of outcomes, when you find these differences, we tend to attribute it to individuals. It must be about women or it must be about men. I think the structure of the way we study this in these kinds of studies lead us there. So, I mean, I do think these our models are masculine, so here are some of my cartoons. Okay, so now let me turn to the next, um, how are we doing? Next area that I want to talk about, and that is about gender schemas and the social cost of asking. Hannah Bowles at, at uh, the Kennedy School and Kathy Tinsley at Georgetown have been doing a lot of this work on trying to understand what's the backlash, looking at sort of um, uh, gender schemas, stereotypes, and how that, mi that might impact um, what happens. So we're not starting with the individual, we're starting with what happens and how she or he is seen. Um, so these tend not to be in the labs, they're video scripts, where they uh, actually often do them uh, online. Um, so um, women, it turns out, get penalized for asking for more money. Now, I just want to read you the ask, however. Okay, so these are the studies. So there's an ask. There's either a video or a script of the ask. And the ask is, I understand that there is a range of ter in terms of how much junior managers are paid in their first placement. 
I would like to be paid at the top of the range. I would also like to be eligible for the bonus. That is a particular kind of ask, right? I teach negotiation and my students would never ask that way. It's a very individual, um, terrific kind of ask, which we know that would get this, uh, might, might uh, get this backlash effect. So men and women penalize women for asking more for more pay using this ask. Uh, it's, one of the things that's interesting is actually women penalize men for using this ask too. Um, therefore, and what follows from that study is women are less likely to initiate negotiation with male evaluators because they expect that they're, and what happens is it means you don't get hired, right? So you have this ask and then you don't get hired. Um, in a more recent um, uh, work that Hannah's been doing, she's been looking at two things, the kind of ask and also the presence of outside offers. So presence of outside offers, you know, so the sine qua non in negotiation, do you have a good alternative? And if you have a good alternative, you feel legitimate. It turns out if, if women use the alternative and they say, I have another offer, it's legitimate, but they don't get hired. But what turns out to matter is the ask. Okay. Communal relational asking turns out to be okay. So listen to this ask. I love Hannah, I think her work is great, but I think these asks are a problem. I hope it's okay to ask about this. I would feel terrible if I offended you in doing so. My relation with people here are very important to me. That's the relational ask. Um, there's a simple ask that's a little bit more relational. I just thought it seemed like a situation in which I could get your advice about this. Would you be open to talking with me about this question of higher competence? So what happens under those situations is you don't tend to get the backlash effect. Women tend to get, are, are likely to get hired. Kathleen, uh, Kathy, Catherine Tinsley has found that if there are more resources, it's more likely that the ask does this less backlash. And it tends not to apply to higher status women. Higher status versus lower status women tend not to experience the backlash in the way um, that lower status. So this is my new favorite one. So the idea is that you're supposed to negotiate as if you're an agent. So you're supposed to say, like, I'm negotiating for my family, and that's why I'm asking this. So it's like, I'm not really negotiating for myself. I'm negotiating as if I'm an agent. And it, it turns out, I guess, this backlash effects are somewhat mitigated under, under those um, circumstances. Okay. So I want to go, oh, this is a, I forgot this. I keep forgetting I have my slides. This is my double bind one. There is, you know, sort of the, the, these gender schemas and the social cost of asking is obviously related to obviously the double bind. Um, so the last place I want to go is a little bit more to my own work, um, which is looking at if you really want to understand something about the wage gap and why people aren't succeeding in organizations, why don't we look at organizations? And I want to read you two examples about why I think it's important. So the first is from a study of the Women Don't Ask School. And what this um, woman did, it was her, her dissertation, she had one of these um, uh, situations where she gave somebody a Starbucks card, and if you negotiated for more money on the Starbucks card, you were part of the ask category, and if you didn't negotiate for more money on the Starbucks card, you were part of the don't ask category. And not surprising, men asked more. And this is the conclusion of her study. She studied women in investment banking, okay? Investment banking has boom-boom rooms, right? 
She finds that the gender gap in propensity to negotiate completely accounts for the gender gap in seniority among 319 client-facing professionals at an investment bank. She concludes that if women were to negotiate on behalf of themselves as often as men do, they would advance as quickly as men and eliminate the underrepresentation of women in the top ranks of organizations, the so-called glass ceiling effect. Now, when that study was published, in the Wall Street Journal, right around the same time, I want to read you something else. Morgan Stanley has been hit yet again with a gender discrimination lawsuit. The suit comes two years after former Morgan broker Allison Schleifer was awarded $12 million in her sexual discrimination suit against the firm. According to this latest complaint, Morgan Stanley has engaged in a pattern of gender discrimination with respect to compensation and promoting females. Specifically, the women contend that Morgan discriminated against female advisors in terms of training, mentoring, assignment of accounts, participation in company-approved partnership arrangements, etc. I would argue that the Alice and Schleifers of the world have to negotiate for mentors, for training, for client assignments. And if we need to pay much more attention to the context in which negotiation occurs. So what my work has been trying to do is looking at something, negotiated order theory is something that's been around for a long time, not around gender. Anselm Streiss in 1978 wrote about how hospitals particularly were structured as negotiated orders in the sense that the way things work were incomplete and everything is a, is a continual negotiation. And one of the things he said, which I love, quoting, stealing from Gertrude Sine, is he said, a negotiation is a negotiation is a negotiation, right? Not all negotiations are the same. And so, from, in my own work, what I've been trying to do is look at how negotiations occur around work. So it's not just about money, it's about the everyday activities that we're engaged in. The second aspect of it is, negotiators are organizational actors, where the power and status to define the situation of what's negotiable and what's not is, in the, is part of the context. And negotiated orders set the context for particular negotiations, but it means that negotiations can change those negotiated orders as well. So it's not as static. And what I've added to this is this notion of second generation gender issues that Susan Sturm has written so, so much about. So first generation would be overt discrimination. Second generation gender issues are where gender is embedded in organizational policies and practices and cultures and where things can look natural and neutral, but they have differential impacts. So let me give you some examples of um, how negotiation plays out in organization that, Im that impacts, I think, compensation and, uh, and work. So jobs are gendered, right? We know that firemen are usually men, and clerical workers are usually women. But a lot of roles in organizations are also gendered in the sense that certain people are seen as good fits for them. You know, so many years ago, Deb and I, Demaris and I did a project where the job of production supervisor in a plant was gendered masculine, right? There were no women as production supervisors, and one of the reasons was it said you had to be a strict disciplinarian, available 24-7, and be essentially a control freak. And so no women were seen as appropriate for that role. It turned out the job was quite different from that. But any woman who wanted that job had to negotiate for that job. She was not on the screen for that job. In a professional services firm that we've done a lot of work in, rainmakers are the ones who are seen to be leaders, right? People who sell a lot. 
If a woman wants to be a leader, she has to negotiate to be on that screen. Mary Louise Roth, who um, contributed to a special issue we did, um, talks about women on Wall Street. Right? There are only certain kinds of roles that women are put in on Wall Street. There are also certain kind of places they want to be. So these negotiations are not about pay, but they are the negotiations about the criteria and the opportunities to take on those roles. Right? And so people need to recognize that those um, happen. The second way that gender negotiation plays out in organizations is something I call gendered work. What counts as work? Who does invisible work? Well, you know, there's been some of this interesting work, I think, on the glass cliff that disproportionately women get asked to do change, uh, change work. I have a lot of data about women who are put in clean-up situations, come and clean up this mess, but doing it in an acting role, and as soon as you clean it up, we'll give somebody else the chance. <clears throat> Or a woman was asked to come in and save the client. She saves the client, but she gets no bonus on the basis of it. Just gets put back to her own situation. Your own Joanne Martin, who's not here anymore, wrote a wonderful article about the invisible work of women faculty, women and minority faculty, and how they spend their time, and what counts and what doesn't count. So gendered work means it doesn't count. How do people claim value for that work that's not seen as work? Exclusionary networks, we know that a lot of networks are homophilous. It's hard to break in. In Wall Street, it's especially the case um, in some of these studies that Boris Groysberg and, and Louise Marie Roth have done about women on Wall Street. They find they're excluded from these networks, which means they don't have access to clients. And so they have to negotiate to be part of those networks in order to get, um, get clients. And I guess the final thing is work and personal life, right? How do concepts of the ideal worker and how we think about who should be, who we want to have uh, work for us. Um, how does that get played? How does that get played out? First of all, who can take advantage of those benefits? It's much less likely that men are seen as legitimate taking advantage of those benefits. Women tend to be. There's the issue about pregnancy and the changing status. We're involved in a, uh, in a project with a large um, consulting company that's concerned about women and not moving to the top. And one of the things that happens is, as the women get pregnant and they leave for their maternity leaves, people wonder what's going to keep happening to the clients. Um, and then when they take the second maternity leave, they're worried even more. And by the time they say, you've taken your third maternity leave, you can't come back. You can't come back and get those clients. And so, you know, how do we negotiate about those? My husband, who is a psychoanalyst, has been advising us on this, and he says, you know, when women psychoanalysts are pregnant, their patients go crazy. So this is, must be what's subconsciously happening with these pregnant consultants as they're sitting with clients, and they're pregnant. What's going to happen to me? Uh, what's going to happen to me? We certainly know about the motherhood penalty. We certainly know that, that opportunities are taken away. These are negotiating situations that they're not about pay, but they influence, but they're negotiating, in, they're informal, they're embedded in and around what happens uh, in, in organizations. So in these second generation issues, what are the implications for negotiation processes? How can we think about studying gender and negotiation in these contexts? Well, the first thing that's important is these issues are constructed. They're not given, right? We have to figure out is this a negotiable issue? Who's going to negotiate it? How do we recognize it? And even more complicated, what does somebody want when they negotiate? 
In our laboratory studies, we tell them what we, they want. They want to get as much as they can around a number. Here, what is it? How do we figure out exactly, uh, exactly uh, what we want? Because these are sort of, it's more negotiating around rather than bargaining for things. The second is, who's positioned to negotiate? So in my work, I've been really interested in how people get positioned in negotiate, negotiation so they feel legitimate asking for what they want to ask for. And there, it isn't just about, you know, how you ask, although I think that's important. It's about your value, your position in the organization, how people see you, the kinds of information you have, how easy it is to get people to negotiate with you. Those are the issues that we need to pay attention to if we want to help people negotiate in these difficult kinds of situations. Or more complicated, I don't want to say difficult, they're more complicated kind of situations because what is the negotiation um, itself? The third thing is resistance, right? The degree to which these issues get raised. Some people might be losing out, other people might be gaining. Um, in my own work and, and, and Deb Meyerson's work too, we talk about the issues of moves and turns. So how do you think about dealing with resistance when it comes up? So somebody says, uh, you want that opportunity and somebody says to you, I don't think you're ready for this role, and you think you are, how do you turn that? You can't sit in a place of not ready. You might turn it by saying, you know, what are you looking for in this role? What's the, what's the success criteria for somebody in this role? Or somebody says, when you're coming back from a maternity leave and somebody says, I don't think you can really t service this client in the way this client needs to be serviced. So you might have to then talk about why you think you can do it, what we call correcting moves. But in these kinds of situations, you're not just talking about offers and counter-offers. You're talking about people positioning themselves vis-a-vis -vis each other. And then the last thing is, how do you frame issues without blame? Because when you talk about some of these gender issues in organizations, the implication may be that people might see themselves as what Susan calls bad actors. And we don't see them as bad actors, but what we're really trying to do is enlist them to work with us. So, what are, so I always tell people, what are some of the reasons you need, to, for people's reasons for saying no? How can you understand that it's not from bad actors? They might not just have recognized these situations. So what are people's reasons for saying no? So at the individual level, um, this is where I, what I call sort of the shadow negotiation, how people position themselves, how they recognize issues, how they get people to the table, how they deal with challenges to their legitimacy, how they enlist others to work with them, and how they try to reframe the negotiation so it doesn't just look like a zero-sum game. And then I think the way I want, want a final end, end, and then we'll have some time um, for questions, is that I also think one can expand this way of thinking to blow it up to a more systemic level. So recognizing negotiation opportunities, making them legitimate topics for discussion, and their opportunities for um, mutual learning. I think the best example about how that's happened is around the issue of workplace flexibility and people's integrating of work and personal life. So you can imagine, 20-something years ago, individuals were negotiating conditions for a leave that nobody had ever thought about having leaves before. They accumulate over time, and then there's policies. 
And then the issue, well, do people take advantage of those policies? Well, what we know is sometimes it's seen as not useful to take advantage of those policies. So then do we do some experiments where we can show that work groups can use them? And if work groups can use them, then it isn't really about individuals. And I'm involved in a project now where I've been looking at, um, at Deloitte and their women's initiative and how the changes in that women's initiative has actually had spillovers into other, other institutional um, uh, processes. And so two things are important there around this work and personal life issue. They have a program called Personal Pursuits. When you leave for maternity leave, they stay in contact. You have a personal pursuit. You can be in personal pursuits for five years. They give you, if you want, what they call kitchen table projects, if you're interested. So, because the, what they do is they want you to come back. And then I think the thing that's which, uh, uh, gotten most publicity is this mass career customization. Deloitte has been experimenting with treating careers as if uh, the person who, Kathy Benker, who does it, she just says, well, if we can make genes customized, we can do careers customized, too. And it, she start, they start to think about, well, how do people, how does everybody have a mass career customization profile? Everybody in the organization does that? Can they step off the track? Do they, it's on four dimensions, your role, your timing, your the place you're going to work. And so now what we've gone from individuals negotiating about are they going to have a leave to now organizations thinking about, well, we need to rethink careers. And she has a new book coming out called The Lattice Organization. Rather than thinking people moving up, they're going to move um, uh, lattice-wise. The second thing, um, so I think it's recognizing opportunities, making them legitimate topics for discussion and opportunities for mutual learning. And I think Deloitte is another example about assignment of clients. You know, people used to negotiate about what client would I get assigned to. And when you start to accumulate that data, what they found was that women tended not to get good assignments. And the reason was they thought that they were going they could, to, they couldn't count on them sticking with the client. And it was important for very large clients, so they didn't get those assignments. Once you start to see, once individuals start to do it and the data starts to accumulate, you can start to see some systemic ways of changing. I think, so the second thing I want to talk about is, is this idea about a dual agenda. And I like to think about the dual agenda. We've talked about it ourselves in the work that we've done on gender and organization change at the organizational level. How do you connect what's good around gender equity to what's good for the organization? We're always looking at that. There's, a, there's an organizational effectiveness piece to all of this. But I also think it matters at the individual level, too. And how do people connect what's good for them to what's good for the organization. And so um, I know this is a more uh, academic talk, but I always like to tell this story about this because I think it's one of the best I've ever heard. A CEO of a financial services firm said to me, you know, I never negotiate salary. And I said to him, how come? And he said, when I give people an offer, it's fair. And if people were to negotiate with me, the implication would be I'm not fair. Uh, people don't do that. He said, but you know, one time I gave a woman an opportunity to grow a major piece of business. And she said to me, you know, at what you're paying me, every, I'm going to be hiring people who are paid more than I am, and they're going to know it. And it's going to undermine my ability to achieve your agenda. And he said, she was right. And I paid her what she was asked for. And I think there's one, two nice things about that story. One is she knew what she knew about him, right? That she couldn't ask would be perceived as not fair. But look how she connects uh, compensation to an organizational outcome. It's not always easy to do that, 
but I think it's a, it's a good thing to do. And then I think finally, this whole idea about creating new structures to make organization orders more transparent and negotiable. So Susan Sturm has been doing a lot of work on that, especially at universities. Um, and she's written a lot about what happened at the University of Michigan. And she talks about organizational catalysts. So they are people who make information and networks much more transparent so that the context when people come into a negotiation, they're not handicapped and disadvantaged um, and disadvantaged uh, when they do that. So my new book is really about sort of taking this stuff a little bit further and looking at the connection between the individual and the institutional and the institutional changes that, that can come about. But I think it takes us a far way, far way away from that women don't ask. I think it really complicates our sense of if we really want to understand about the wage gap and what's happening about women in leadership, I think we have to start with what goes on in the organization and not just look at these sort of simple things. I think the gender schema work is, I think it's useful and it's a, really, it's a step forward, but it's still very much at the individual level, really not looking at what happens uh, in the context in which these occur. So I, that's all I have to, that's the end of my talk. I'll probably end with some joke at the end, but I, I'll, I'll wait um, and see if people have any uh, questions that they want to ask. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.